Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy, brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at Ends Report. I'm James Ajapong Parsons. In this episode, we'll be getting the lowdown on why DEFRA has axed its plans to merge its environmental watchdogs and change the ways we protect our land. We'll be discussing the government's latest vision for its flagship biodiversity net gain policy, as well as some silky and a little bit creepy new evidence of shrew-eating spiders in South England. For our deep dive section, we'll be looking at some of the appalling revelations of PFAS contamination in the UK and the big take-homes from ENS's first PFAS webinar. Finally, we'll be finding out why Germany, Poland and Italy are up in arms about the internal combustion engine. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. To help us deal with the complex web of environmental policy this week, I'm joined by the ENDS Report's own news and features editors, Pippa Neal and Tess Colley. First up, it's an ENDS exclusive, with the discovery that England's environmental regulators won't be getting the corporate merger many feared or hope for, depending on your politics. Tess, what is this all about? So, some controversial proposals to undertake a major reform of of the public bodies tasked with protecting and improving the environment, um, which were launched to some fanfare last year, have been quietly binned by the new team in DEFRA. And before I go into the the weedy details, just some quick words about why you know anyone should possibly care about that. Um, so DEFRA's agencies are the people who are responsible for turning the like, nice, neat policy papers drawn up in Whitehall into actually something on the ground that will be good for for the environment. So, so news- that's, that's the Environment Agency, that's Natural England. Yeah, Forestry what? Commission. Okay. Um, the, the, the delivery bodies, basically. So the news that they aren't actually about to be entirely restructured has come out in the context of really big things that have been happening recently, like the Environmental Improvement Plan that we talked about on Eco Chamber recently. They had loads of targets in it, big goals like 30 by 30, which again, all these agencies are going to have to deliver. Um, and also these agencies taken up strike action uh, recently due to poor pay and being on their knees with the workload uh, following years and years of cuts. So Back to this story. Last year, DEFRA published the Nature Recovery Green Paper for consultation, in which it said that following Brexit, it was right to consider how we reorganised the DEFRA group and that it wanted its arm's length bodies to take integrated approaches, that, that's in quotes there, um, and that the government wanted to reduce duplication between its agencies. So put that way, it sounds relatively harmless, I would say, but in many in the sector saw red flags, as anything branded as simplification often um, does, um, and it provoked a backlash from the, e- the Environment Agency itself, which warned of losing the goodwill of its staff. Natural England said structural reform wasn't necessarily the best way to improve ways of working. And then green groups, who are generally less careful with their words, um, said that reform would waste time and money and harm nature. So, but they- aren't there, sorry, aren't there any areas where, where these groups could, you know, work better together then? Yeah, I mean, it's not... It's not the case that all reform is always bad. And that's not what I think any green group or even what the regulators were saying. I think many in the sector would agree that, you know, for example, issues like uh, rivers and cleaning up our rivers, the water environment, um, there's a bit of crossover with what the environment actually does and what Natural England does. And sometimes they probably do duplicate and they could coordinate better together. That's That would be a good thing. And no one disagrees with that. Um, but what DEFRA was 
proposing seemed far more fundamental and would have taken a lot of time, a lot of resources away from these these bodies when they really need to be focusing on on doing the jobs they're doing. And it would also probably mean um, job cuts as often restructures do. So that that's kind of part of why there was the people really didn't like the idea of this because there's, there's so much to be doing. We don't need to be doing this massive restructure. And, so, and it wasn't just it wasn't just the restructuring of uh, environmental regulators that were on the cards, was it? There was uh, you also scooped the news that Defra has abandoned its efforts to rejig how protected sites are designated. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes, that is true. So this green paper also proposed, like you said, these changes to tell that how protected sites are designated, essentially suggesting that that they should be merged into a simpler legal legal structure. Um, and this again prompted similar fears that this could easily amount to actually weaker protections for some of England's most important habitats. And this is, and we've talked about a lot on the Eco Chamber and on ENS report, this is a kind of deregulatory move we're seeing quite a lot from the government at the moment. And I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it more uh, in a bit. But um, multiple kind of sources told me for this story that um, while primary legislation would be needed to do a lot of that stuff, simplifying protected area uh, legislation and the arm's length body reforms. Um, DEFRA is not to be bidding for any legislation in the next parliamentary session, apart from what I'm told is quite a small peat bill. So that, <laughs> that kind of bolstered this view that a lot of my sources, who all you know work within within Whitehall, working with DEFRA, what they told me is that the new team basically see a lot of this green paper as a useless legacy left over from a previous administration. Whose legacy are we talking about now? Uh, That would be George Eustace. This is pre-Liz Truss, pre-when we had Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, if you can remember that far back to last June. Um, And... Yeah, it's, it was. He was really. He he really backed these these arms length body proposals, um, and it was really his thing. So, it seems that Therese Coffey's much more focused on delivery. Um, I mean, she said that quite a lot recently as well in various public appearances. So, it all fits. Um, but I think some people are breathing a bit of a sigh of relief that these arguably unnecessary changes uh, are now not what Defra's focusing on. So DEFRA, the DEFRA group, Environment Agency, Natural England, Pippa, are they all one big happy family now? Everything's back to normal? I think pretty much far from it. Um, Earlier or last week, members of the trade union prospect, um, including Natural England and the Animal and Plant Health Agency, voted to take strike action on the 15th of March, which actually happens to coincide with the day of the spring budget. Um, and this is the largest industrial action its members have taken in more than a decade, with every single balloted area clearing the 50% legal threshold. So we talked about on the Eco Chamber before how the Environment Agency were on strike recently. Now we know Natural England are, so I think there's lots more lots more to come over the next few months. So all's not well with the regulators right now. Um, and there's also some big stuff nestled into the green paper surrounding habitats regulations. Is that right, Tess? Yeah. So one of the most controversial parts, I think it's fair to say, of, of the green paper, which had all this arm's length body and, and site protection stuff in it, uh, was about changing the way these habitats regulations work. And these are the rules and regulations which underpin a lot of these legal protections uh, for species protection, for, for site protection, etc. These are 
probably not binned, <laughs> I can say, uh, not not because I've got any deep insight there, but because the retained EU law bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, um, you know, that is that is it's got a sunset clause in it for all EU derived legislation, which includes the habitats regulations, um, which will mean they all unless ministers state otherwise, all retained EU law will be dropped from the statute books this December. Uh, and and the, so the habitat regulations come under scope of that. Uh, so whatever whatever happens to that green paper, which apparently DEFRA is still going to publish a, a response to, um, the habitat regulations are at risk. Which is enormous. So we're talking thousands <laughs> plus pieces of environmental legislation, which could just all be binned because of this rule bill. Correct. It's, <laughs> it terrifying. sounds like there should be more to it, but that is it. <laughs> apparently DEFRA's, um they've got a kind of bucket system so they're they're kind of sorting EU derived law into buckets of either keep, bin, or tweak a bit. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and we, we don't know where we don't know where the habitats regulations are, but we don't know where any of it really is at the moment. So right. which, yeah. which bucket, which bin is the most full then? Well, that's, it's the a, <laughs> that's the big question, isn't it? Moving on to more questions then, this time in the realm of biodiversity net gain. From November of this year, developers are going to need to deliver a 10% uplift in nature to obtain planning permission in England. Late last month, the government published its latest update to its net gain policy in the form of a consultation response. Tess, can you just give us a few of those key take-homes? Yeah, so this response was much delayed uh, and it has clarified a few things that uh, the sector weren't clear about. It's, it's clarified that brownfield land, so that's land that's been previously developed, will not be exempt from this requirement to see an uplift in biodiversity. That's probably one of the more uh, controversial parts of it in, sense, in the sense that developers won't be happy with it, but it is, it's what a lot of, I think, green groups uh, wanted to see. So there's that. And development on sites smaller than 25 square metres will be exempt. Uh, the response said. We also know that uh, developers will be allowed to sell the excess biodiversity units uh, as off-site gains for another development. Which some people aren't happy about, are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people aren't happy about it in the NGO kind of space because they're, they're worried it might essentially see less biodiversity uh, as an end result because rather than it being, oh, you know, you've got a bit more net gain on this development, that's a good, that's an extra plus. You can claim that uh, the developers could sell it off to a different... So all all in all, you don't actually get as much gain as you could. Um, but, you know, there's, there's counter arguments to that from the developer's commercial side, I suppose. We also now know that developers will be able to stack, as it's called, biodiversity net gain payments with other sort of environmental uh, payments like neutral neutrality, but not for carbon. So there's there's bits and pieces we now know, and that's good because uh, this becomes mandatory in November, uh, about nine months away. Um, but there, there, yeah, there are a few things still missing. What are those things? Well, there's quite a lot, but a lot, a lot of the big questions are around. Uh, enforcement. We know that that local planning authorities will need to will, will be in charge of doing that enforcement. Um, but there's things like so on that stacking I just mentioned. Uh, the government has published guidance on what it's or how it's going to run. But as some lawyers at the law firm Freeths have noted, uh, it's this is only guidance. There is there's no effective existing legal constraints on this, and no mention of any such forthcoming constraints. So it's not clear how government expe expects this to be enforced. But it's not going to be Natural England doing. But the it's job. not going to be Natural England. Natural England have confirmed that they will not be directly enforcing it, um, which is, I mean, 
you know they've got a lot of other things to be doing as we've as we've as we've discussed but local planning authorities stripped to the bone they've got so little resource the government has announced some extra funding with this biodiversity net gain um consultation response of about 16 million but i think generally the the response is well it's good to have some more but it's not that's that's not really going to do anything for for many people um, and there's also lots of gaps around. It's quite technical stuff, but quite important to actually making this work. Like, you know, a, a biodiversity game plan template that developers can use. We still don't have that. Um, and knowing kind of the timing of the required way that um, developers will have to produce on-site games. Um, so yeah, it's all kind of, these all might sound small and technical and a bit boring, but they're the things that are going to make it work. And we're still waiting for a lot of it. And the government is trying to communicate all these this new policy. Are people ready for it? Well, so there are three main groups of people involved in biodiversity net gain. You've got the local planning authorities, we've talked about developers, of course, uh, and also the landowners who, you know, are trying to, people are, the government's trying to incentivize landowners to come forward and to create biodiversity banks that they can then sell on to, the, to developers. Um, and that's for people who can't deliver biodiversity net gain on site. Yes, exactly. So if a good developer can't deliver on site, they're meant to they're meant to look for that first. If they can't do that, they're meant to go off site, and it, but kind of within the local area. Um, and enough if they can't can't do that at the moment, they're going to be able to buy statutory credits from the government. Um, but eventually, that is intended to be phased out. So um, having that kind of bank of of units from landowners is going to be really important. There's a bit of unknown really about how many are landowners getting on board with it. A DEFRA commissioned impact assessment suggested there's going to be a shortfall when the policy comes in. But I was at a conference last week with all the great and good of the biodiversity net gain world. And if, if that was, if the conversations that were had there, anything to go by, there's more interest from landowners than is, is being communicated. But um, there's very little data backing this up. I think it's it's an area that even the government maybe aren't quite sure just how much interest there is. We'll see come November, but you're really taking it up to the line doing that. From the web of NetGain then to uh, another type of web, the real web of the noble false widow spider. Um, Pippa, I've seen a video up on our website of a spider eating a shrew. Why is that so interesting? beyond the morbid fascination of a spider spinning a shrew inside its web. <laughs> yeah, well, firstly, as someone with a genuine fear of spiders, I'd say <laughs> the video is uh, pretty pretty horrifying. But it's interesting because this is the first time ever a spider has been, a spider of this kind has been seen eating a shrew in the UK and the third documented case of one preying on small vertebras. Um, and I think it's quite like when you see the, if you watch the video, you'll understand, but the pygmy shrew is more than triple the length of the the noble false widow spider um, and weighs roughly 10 times as much. So it's quite a big challenge for this spider to... And, and this little spider is, is the size of a 50p coin. Mm. Wild, absolutely wild. And what, one of the things that I thought was so amazing about this, um, this record is that we're starting to see see more of them around the UK? Like, Are they established now? Have we got breeding mm. populations? So this video we're talking about was recorded in Chichester in West Sussex, um, but they're actually no native to Madeira and the Canary Islands. Um, but sightings um, in the UK have started like in, I think in around the early 2000s. I mean, since there's been, you know, a few, few um, sightings here and there, but according to the British 
Arachnological Society. Um, it's not yet clear whether there are established populations. So there's been a few in London, um, some as far north as Glasgow and Edinburgh. Um, but yeah, they're kind of small clusters of populations rather than being well established. And one of those uh, vertebrates you mentioned last year, we reported, wasn't it? Uh, there were pipistrel bats being wrapped in the web of its um, of the, the noble false widow's uh, lair, so to speak. I mean, I mean, it's, it's it's it in my mind, it paints a terrifying picture. Have, have either of you guys seen one in the flesh? Or? I say I've I've discovered a, an established population in a welly that I <laughs> had, had until moments later had my foot in. Oh my god! Uh, moments before, I should say. Yeah, that was a a bad moment for me. <laughs> that was recently. It was like in the last year. Yeah, did I, I didn't get I didn't get bitten or anything. Luckily. But um, I, I, you know, I thought there was a bit of gravel in the shoe. So I took it out, not knocked it out, and there was a bloody Paul's Willow spider. But oh you let the God. spider run alive. Oh yeah, yeah, it was alive. It was sort of on the. It wasn't in the shoe. It was. It was in the in the leg bit of the welly. Oh. So it wouldn't get squished. Oh. Just my soul got squished <laughs> um, in that moment. Um, so yeah, that that was that was that wasn't good. I mean, it is worth saying before we get any spider lovers complain about our podcast that if you do get bitten by the spider, it's it's meant to be a, of a similar sting to a wasp or a bee. Although if a rash does persist or, or symptoms do persist, go see a doctor and medical advice and all that wonderful, wonderful things we have access to. Um, I think before we, but the last thing I just wanted to, to kind of end on with this spider story, which I, I found fascinating and Pippa, you alluded to it with the weight, the size, the the kind of the enormity of this shrew compared to to the spider, and that, and that's just the fact that it's even able to lift its prey up. And I was looking into this to to, to its mechanism. What is it's kind of what it's able to do? It's it's able to kind of create this like tension catapult, and it holds this catapult down until its prey walks along, and then it hits the wire, and it sl- and the prey slingshots off the ground. And if it's off the ground, it can't get any traction with the surface. The spider comes down, it hits its neurotoxins into its body, which are really lethal to small vertebrates. This is what this is what gets really strange. And these basically the proteins bind to the nerve endings. And if you watch the video of a, of the shrew in our on our website, you'll actually won't realise, but the shrew's alive whilst whilst the spider's wrapping it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what it, but to do that, it's, it, it attaches these extra slings to, to the original slingshot and almost uses it like a pulley system wow. to be able to jack the, the shrew up. <laughs> I mean, it's, un, I mean, it's, it's fascinatingly gross, I, I, I feel. If you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories we've been chatting about today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com, including that scary, gruesome, but awesome video of the shrew-eating spider. So now on to our deep dive section. I'm here to talk PFAS with ENS's head honcho and editor, Jamie Carpenter, following an international investigation into the contamination of these toxic chemicals and ENS's own chemicals event featuring the world-renowned attorney, Rob Billet. Billet pulled no punches, did he, Jamie? Who is he and what did he say? Yeah, well, I, I don't think I've ever been called a head honcho before, so so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Rob, Robert was great. He... Um, he is an attorney from the US and um he's he's most well known for his legal action against the chemical firm DuPont. So um and that's been been 
chronicled in the film Dark Water starring Mark Ruffalo's, which I think was about three or four years old now, but it's on iPlayer at the moment. Great um, film. Really, really good film. Um, and Rob Billet's also got his own book, Exposure, which tells the same story in more in more detail. And, and what, what that what that story is about is it's uh, basically a 20-year legal battle, um, which which all started when um with a, a farmer in, in West Virginia who who found he, he was experiencing some unexplained and frankly quite distressing animal deaths at his farm. And then it, it turned out that there was um, a load of toxic sludge containing PFOA, which is a type of PFAS in the, in the landfill next door to his, um, to his, his property. Um, which is now banned and illegal. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But at that point it wasn't regulated in the States. Um, so, and it all just kind of spiraled from there. So, um, Rob Billett then he took on his case. He then discovered that Piffoa was in the Ohio River in, in drinking water. Um, so um, potentially polluting drinking water of, of loads of towns and cities in in that area. Um, and obviously the concern with PFAS of Piffoa is, is the kind of health impact. So linked to, I think, six major diseases and two two forms of cancer. So um, so eventually, I mean, you, you can... You can um, interested you can watch the watch the film read the book but so it kind of culminated two decades of twists and turns and and, and legal legal stuff going on but eventually dupont paid out hundreds of millions of dollars to to due to contamination so that that's who rob billet is and what he's done he's like mr pfas mr pfas yeah so really um and and he was he was really great on the um on the webinar so yeah so he, he told that story so also you 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 can also listen to the story on our on our webinar as well as reading it in the, in his book and seeing the film and and what i mean I, I was struck by just how um direct he was mm. and he took aim at some pretty big organizations i thought at the time i mean could, could you sort of like just summarize some of the things he went through for yeah. our audience? i mean i think i think there, there were a few things from what he said i mean i think he did yeah he did he did he didn't hold back at all i mean i think um I think one one of the one of the kind of things that I took away from it is is although you you have this 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 massive um, payout from Dupont in the United States that the, the battle is still going on and um, when you look at the states you still see quite a lot of PFAS related litigation going on. Um, there, there's been a there's actually a lot of money being paid out by the U.S. government to um, help with contamination and clean up this sort of stuff. So I think there was a big announcement by the Biden administration fairly recently. And I think I think one of the points that Rob Billet was making is that around who should pay for this, should it should it be the taxpayer? And his point very forcefully is absolutely not. No, no, because you have you've got you've got the these firms who we, well we know who's responsible. Those firms know they've been responsible for it for for decades and they've actually they sought to cover it up for a very long time. So so it should not be us that's paying for it. It should be them. I thought that was that was kind of quite a uh, well made point. I think in in terms of kind of taking the um, taking the aim at people, I think the, what one I think the kind of possibly the most interesting news line to come out of it was was him criticising the World Health Organization. So this was around that the, the um, WHO having proposed drinking water limits for PFOA and PFOS, which are two um, two types of PFAS, um, and the, the, these limits had already been criticised. Um, but at the end of last year, by a group of dozens of scientists and regulators, who basically they they signed a letter saying that the these these proposed limits are, are too weak and they want the WHO to withdraw or revise those guidelines. Um, and, and Rob Billett told the web, our webinar that the the draft limits were in quotes misguided 
wrong and contrary to the existing science. So he's basically saying where 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 people have looked at the actual data, they they just wouldn't disagree. They they, they would disagree with the WHO's conclusions. So that that was really um really interesting to hear him say that. Did you speaking with these folks? You had a, a plethora of experts um, on the panel. Um, we had someone from the European Chemicals Agency, Peter van der Zandt, Crispin Halsall from the professor, who was a professor at um, Lancaster University, and Julie Schneider, chemicals campaigner at Chems Trust. Did Did you get a sense from them where they think PFAS regulation is going, both international on the international level, but here in the UK? Is Is it all going in one beautiful? Uh, symmetrical future policy direction. Yeah, well, that, that's a really interesting question because I think I think there's at the at the European level, um, EU level, that there, there there is um, there there was quite a significant development uh, last month. So so the the European Chemicals Agency, um, and as you say, we had Peter van der Zandt who spoke at the webinar. They they, they recently proposed unveiled their proposals for a, a kind of a, a group restriction of of PFAS. So that's kind of taking an approach where you're regulating all of PFAS and and um, according to some estimates, there might be kind of 12,000 chemicals within that class. Right? So rather than regulating one or two of them or a few of them, they want to, to take out the whole class. Um, so that that's kind of a, that's a really big proposal. It was brought forward by five European regulators um, and now it's gone to the stage that the European Chemical Agency has put that proposal out and start consulting on it and that'll go through the... Um, Going through the system, so that that's that's all underway, and and there is, ECHA is also um, working on some proposals to restrict the use of PFAS in firefighting foams, which is one of the kind of big uses for it. And um, I think it's well acknowledged that there's a there's a problem with it in those, um, and I think that there are kind of various moves in Europe to sort of tighten drinking water limits, which I think are set at kind of member state levels. So that, that's all kind of going on. So there is there is definitely movement on on PFAS rest, sort of restrictions regulation in Europe. I think the, the the kind of big question for us is to what extent is the UK actually going to follow suit and, and what that might look like. And, and there's obviously been a lot of concern with Brexit that we might not keep pace with the EU on chemicals regulation. And this this might be one of those one of those areas. So and that, that's not to say that the UK is doing nothing on this. There, there is a, there is work going on. There's, there's a, a regulatory management options analysis. That was easy for me to say. That's kind of being ongoing. It's slightly delayed, but I think it's due to report potentially this month, and that will kind of set out potential options for restricting PFAS in the UK. Um, green groups they would like like us to take the same approach as the EU and do like a, a kind of a blanket ban. So that would be a big question as to whether whether that approach is actually taken or not. But yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, I think there's obviously concerns around is the, the UK's mechanism now for chemicals regulation, how well resourced is that compared to what the EU has? Can can we actually do something that ambitious? I think there's going to be a lot of questions around that and, and probably what comes out will be a real big test as to how strong our post-Brexit chemicals regulation will be. And this is this is part of the whole UK reach Versus the EU reach registrations, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So this this is kind of done via that process. So so now the health and safety executive is the kind of main body for for doing this this stuff. So so yeah. So I think it's um it'll be really interesting. I think I think the the the, the campaigners are kind of quite clear as to what they what they want, and um, I think the the government will be under a lot of pressure to keep pace with the 
EU on this side of things, but um, whether it does or not, I think it's kind of quite interesting. As you say, we, we kind of had a very international kind of um, group of speakers. They had the US, you had um, Peter van der Zand from ECHA, who's, they're based in Helsinki. Um, and I think there's, in different parts of the world, there's been a very different experience of this. So you've had these big crises in in the US related to drinking water. There's been um, problems in, in Belgium near to a 3M manufacturing plant where people have been told they, they can't eat eggs around the, because of potential contamination. I, I don't think there's there's been anything like that in the UK and maybe that's the sort of thing that might actually spur more action. I mean, we had the, the Buntsfield fire 20 years ago where there was a load of PFAS used in firefighting foam and that that there were concerns at that point around the impact on drinking water but but um, I don't think there's any there's been anything like those examples from overseas so I think that might might in part explain why action hasn't been forthcoming on the same in the same way I was struck by um Crispin Crispin Hulsell's um comments where he said that if 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 this um restriction does go through at the European level there's this ban that it's going to hit businesses like a steam train which I thought was very interesting from an academic to weigh in on that kind of commercial side yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. he seemed pretty resolute with that too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he was basically saying if, you, if you're kind of in the manufacturing game, you, you need to just make sure that you're looking at all of your all of your product, all of your supply chain and know what's in there and and sort of make sure that if you know you've got a PFAS compound in there that you're, you're ready for this because if you don't, you're going to be... <laughs> yeah, you'll be in the, the kind of uh, on the on the on the train tracks in, in a bit of trouble. And it, it, and if anyone does want to catch up on that webinar, Jamie, where can they go to? Yeah, if you go to our website, so engineport.com forward slash TV, um, and you'll find the webinar there and a load of related content on PFAS as well. So there's lots to digest. Maybe that's not a great way of describing PFAS. No, don't do that. Don't digest anything. And on that. Uh, extra content. I know there's 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 a an amazing map that you've charted on PFAS contamination based on uh, kind of an international group a consortium of journalists that um, sort of sort of published this data. C- can you just take me through that? What the map is and what we learned from it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so th- this this is the work of a um, as you say, it's a collaboration of I think it's like seventeen or eighteen newsrooms across Europe. Um, so people like Le Monde in the UK, there was a, the Guardian involved also Watershed who um, uh, listeners will know Rachel Salvage is now involved uh, previously of, of ENDS is involved in that. Um, and um, they, they basically have mapped two types of things. So one one is sites where PFAS has been detected. So uh, so in, in the UK, they, they've used sort of data from water company um, research, environment agency stuff, and academic papers, that kind of stuff. So they, they, they've, there's a whole load of sites across Europe. I think about seventeen thousand where PFAS contamination has been detected, and then they've, they've taken a whole load of other um, what they're describing as presumptive sites where there, there, there are kind of land uses where the the, the people that made the map suspect that PFAS should be there, but they haven't got the evidence. So things like airports or military sites where where that firefighting foam might might have been used energy from waste plants where those those kind of things so so in all there there's about 40,000 points on this map of Europe um UK is certainly not immune from this so there I think more than 2,000 I think sites in the UK where 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 PFAS has been detected um 
there are some readings that are quite high in the UK. Um, and I, I guess there, there, there is a kind of slight, um, there are a few caveats. So what one is that when you're looking at the map, there might be parts of the map where you can't see many dots on the map. And that doesn't mean there's no PFAS there. It just means that sampling might not have taken place in those in those areas. And, and, and equally, there are other places on the map where it, where it looks like there might be hotspots, but actually that just might mean that a lot of sampling has taken place in those places. So it's not it's not kind of entirely, it doesn't tell the full story, but what it, what it does say, what it does tell you very clearly is that PFAS is everywhere, basically. And I think, I think that's the... That that's that going back to the webinar. I asked the speakers to respond to the to what the map showed. And Rob Billet was saying, "Well, yeah, this this does show it's it's everywhere. It's been manufactured in a lot of places. It's manufactured in the UK, um, and this is the same stuff. It, it's just it is ubiquitous." And if anyone wants to know more about PFAS and the contamination in their backyard, uh, I'd highly recommend a little exercise. Go onto our website, check out the map, see what's going on in your county. Cheers, Jamie. And now on to our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section, where last week the Germans applied the brakes firmly on the Brussels bureaucratic machine when it comes to combustion engines. Simon, Alice are here with me now to help me get to the bottom of the latest Brussels news. And for a start, I'm hoping, Simon, you can tell me why Germany... Italy and Poland are just so upset about their cars. Yeah, it's a bit of a nail-biter we've got this week, James. Um, And it's all to do with plans to ban new sales or sales of new cars with an internal combustion engine from 2035. This was a big key part of the European Commission's plans to slash the EU's greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. We had a deal between Members of the European Parliament, on the one hand, and member states, on the other hand, they came together last week, last year, thrashed out a, a provisional agreement on a new piece of regulation that would basically require all new cars sold on the EU market from 2035 to have zero grams of CO2 emissions from their tailpipes, which is effectively a ban on the internal combustion engine. And that's and that's just diesel cars. That's your petrol cars. That's also vans, I should add. Yeah. Okay. That will look like it was fine. The European Parliament ratified the deal um, in a vote a couple of weeks ago. The deal had then come to um, member states. Generally, this is just a formality, right? After trilogues? Yeah, Alice, can you just take us through what Simon's talking about with this decision-making process? What, what's the trilogue? What's that? Uh, that's basically a process to uh, make the lawmaking system a bit faster. So what they do is um, the three institutions, so that's the commission, the parliament and the council, all meet up behind closed doors and they agree on the final text of the piece of legislation. So it means that when it then goes to vote, it should be a formality, they just need to sign off on it. So what happened this time is that parliament signed off, but dun dun dun. Yeah. The council was meant to vote last week in a meeting of their um, permanent representatives. So these are like sort of like ambassadors for each of the member states. They have a regular meetings in Brussels. And like Alice says, this is generally a formality. So did they sign? Well, they did not. This is, this is, and this is the crazy thing. They, they were meant to just sign off and that was fine. And the, then the law would go through and we'd have this EU ban on the internal combustion engine for cars and vans from 2035. It didn't go through and it didn't go through... For one big reason, which is Germany. All right, but that's a bit unusual, right? Because Germany 
usually not one to rock the boat, usually the driver behind a lot of environmental legislation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it is unusual. Germany generally trying to seek consensus, generally trying to make sure that the EU lawmaking process works smoothly. But it reveals sort of these deep tensions within the coalition German government where you've got the Greens and the, S, uh, the SPD, the socialists on the one side who are, um, and then you've got the FDP, the Liberal Party on the other side. And FDP, you have to think of as being extremely aligned to the interests of German industry. And in this case, German car makers. FDP was kicking up a huge fuss about this 2035 ban on the combustion engine. Why? Because lots of German car makers love the internal combustion engine and feel like that's their real area of expertise, particularly diesel engines. Deeply unhappy about the 2035 ban and believe that Germany will lose its competitive advantage in car making as a result of having to switch to electric cars. Yeah, even though this is not news, it's been the EU has been building up to this ban for years and years. So theoretically, they've had some time to prepare. Yeah, I mean, and some of them are doing better than others. Uh, so Volkswagen, after a slow start, has has got invested billions and billions in electric car making. I wonder why. <laughs> uh, some of them less so. So BMW is typically not been so good. Porsche, um, not so good at electric cars. Basically, the outcome, of, the outcome of all of this is that Germany has signaled that it wants to abstain on the final vote for this text. That's thrown the the plans into chaos. Um, uh, th they basically pulled the vote from the meeting of permanent representatives last week, and it's not clear when we're going to have another vote. So the thing, to, the key thing to remember here is that the council rarely holds votes it thinks there is not a majority for. But just to be clear, Germany is not the only one pumping the brakes. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. So you have Poland and Italy, who last week both published statements in which they signaled they were completely opposed to the 2035 ban worth remembering they both have large automobile sectors and that they would vote against it and the way that it works in councils you need something called a qualified majority vote for things to pass so that's 55 percent of eu member states representing 65 percent of the eu population um and there's the other things to bear in mind with the slightly arcane voting procedure that they use is that in order to get a blocking minority you need to have four member states vote against something so um in this case we know we have two we've got poland and italy there are potentially we could see potentially two others vote vote against and germany's threat to abstain basically is a big issue um although it's not exactly clear at the moment the fact that they've pulled the vote is an indication that they're not confident that it would that, 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 that the legislation would pass what what would happen if they did get their way i mean this is the thing that the the the, the green not just the green groups to be honest also some of the car makers are deeply worried about this because if you're a car maker who's willing or has already invested billions of euros in um upgrading your production facilities to build electric cars and suddenly, on the basis that there's going to be a ban on internal combustion engine from 2035, and suddenly you have um, uncertainty and the potential um, uh, that, that that this law won't get passed, this is going to cause you a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, um, and I can't, I mean, I can't see how this is necessarily a good thing for you as a car maker. The thing that Germany's demanding is that the European Commission goes away and comes back with a, another piece of legislation setting out the conditions under which new cars 
with an internal combustion engine could continue to be sold after 2035 if they're using carbon neutral fuels and this is a whole conversation yeah but this is also clearly meddling with the way that the eu legislative process works because the commission's role is to propose regulation and they shouldn't be fettered in that particular way that's exactly what the commission said as well last week people are unhappy about it people in the parliament are really really unhappy about this because they're seeing member states basically overstepping the line set out in the EU founding treaty, which is that only the European Commission can propose legislation. Um, and the member states, Germany, as being perceived as holding the European Commission to ransom and being like, we, we, will, we will do our best to try and stop this piece of legislation going through unless you commit to proposing something. Well, that's not how the EU works. It also weakens the process currently because... There was an agreement. The uh, the representatives of both the Parliament, the Commission, and the Council were all in one room together. They hashed out an agreement, and then the work of these representatives is just basically being trampled on the foot by yeah Germany, Italy, Poland, going that's mm, not good enough. Absolutely. I mean, and we got some extraordinary quotes last week from MEPs who were in the room when the deal was being struck. Who feel so angry about this because this is undermining the whole process of how legislation gets done in in Brussels. Mm. Can I ask then, will Germany, Italy and Poland get their way? It, it does feel up in the air. Olaf Scholz, so the German Chancellor, met Ursula von der Leyen, who's the European Commission president, on Sunday. They discussed it. All we know about those discussions is that Ursula von der Leyen afterwards said that they were constructive. So that's that's not telling us very no much. No detail. No, no details No, nothing. <laughs> I mean, you would... You would like to hope that they'll come out with a kind of fudge that will enable all the parties to save face. Mm. But at this point, very difficult to say. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Alice. Um, and if you haven't had your fix of German car politics, be sure to head over to Ends Europe's website, endseurope.com. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone, Alice Fillon and Jamie Carpenter, who've taught me DEFRA will always be remembered by environmentalists for the things it does, even if it is a useless legacy. We now know that we still don't know how biodiversity net gain will be implemented on the ground. Spiders are one step closer to taking over the world, with a second mammal now on the menu. PFAS regulation is almost as complicated and difficult to deal with as the chemicals themselves. And Brussels is trying to free itself from a legislative car crash caused by meddling member states. If you're interested in hearing more about any of these stories we've discussed today, please head over to our websites, endsreport.com and endseurope.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>